Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I have Dr. Fergus Connolly, a performance expert, consultant, author and speaker. He's extensively worked in rugby, football, the NFL, the NBA and elite military units to name a few. On this episode, we'll be drilling deep into Fergus's philosophies and insights on sports science, performance department organisation and how to identify problems and solutions strategically. Please share your support to the podcast and make sure you subscribe. But if you have already done so, then we appreciate it greatly. But without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Fergus Connolly. Fergus Connolly, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, mate. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Just for the listeners' benefit, you've got a very extensive background working with a number of top teams um, across the globe. Could you just give the listeners a bit of context and background into you and uh, your career to date? Yeah, I've been fortunate, I think, to work with um, yeah a lot of um, well-known teams, I guess. Um, and when I was starting out in the industry, I'm now 42. When I was starting out in my, in my 20s, I was very lucky to start with a Premier League team, soccer in the UK, work um, in international rugby, work in the NFL with the 49ers, who unfortunately didn't get across the line last weekend, the Super Bowl, uh, worked at University of Michigan football, worked with some special operations groups. Um, so yeah, so I've been fortunate just to work across soccer, rugby, um, football, and then consult in NBA, baseball, uh uh, NHL and um, yeah, almost I guess probably all of the sports, even cricket, which I actually international cricket, which is not a sport that I can claim to have any knowledge in. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting journey. You've obviously seen a lot of changes throughout that period, no doubt as well. Very much so, actually. Yeah, very much so. Like I mean, I started really at the time when sports science wasn't even heard of. It was the first sports scientist full-time in any team sport i think around the world certainly in international sport and uh you know i was very fortunate i was with the watch rugby team and when you know when i started uh people were just really looking you know there was always sports science per se but there wasn't ever you know dedicated somebody was dedicated to it and so that's when i started i started um you know monitoring tracking with I forget how many GPS units we had with with Wales. The head coach Warren Gatlin was very progressive, very keen to, you know, he believed in getting the 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 most from and looking after his players, and so I was really fortunate to be around people who trusted me. I guess look in hindsight, you know, trusted, just saw that you know I wanted the best for the players and was. Um, you know, could, would let me go and and do what what I wanted to do, and um, you know, really make sports science applicable. And what was interesting was my my PhD was in computer based optimization, but it was an action based research PhD. So it was actually uh, writing, designing, writing software, but implementing it in practice. And actually, part of the PhD was a site visit by the by the uh, by the supervisor and. Um, the that mindset so studying and doing that over three and a half years really gave me an appreciation for um the difference between just theoretical research and applied research and uh because many phds that were being done at the time were 
very, very theoretical, but didn't really have an application or a benefit in the real world. And I brought that kind of mindset with me um, into sport um, and basically all through, um, you know, through my career. And I think it stood me in, uh, you know, it gave me a wonderful appreciation and, and foundation in always keeping the real world in mind and the application in the real world. You would have obviously seen the field develop and you'd have seen some trends come and go. And, you know, it's an understatement to say we're in the information age. Um, where are we going with sports science at the moment? Or, you know, what's the trends that you see kind of emerging now that in a few years or 10 years, or whatever you think will be um, as prevalent, say, as, uh, you know, the paralysis by analysis data movement we're in at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. When you look back on society, like when you look back in the history of, of man, um, you had, um, you know, the first information age, which was with Gutenberg and the printing press and that promoted and allowed, um, you know, an explosion within the industrial revolution. It also allowed ideas to spread. Now you have the second information revolution, if you will, with the internet. But I think from a performance industry perspective, we had a data era. Um, where people are collecting so much data. Now we just have an information explosion, but we don't have a knowledge era. That hasn't um, really come to pass yet. And we've got a proliferation of uh, data, of information. We have a lot of misinformation as well, uh, miscommunication. And uh, I think that over the next little while, we'll start to see a filtering out of what is actually really making a difference because you've got so much misinformation, not only when it comes to uh, performance, but also when it comes to sports science and actually what's making a difference. And it's, it's very difficult to tell the difference between what's marketing and what's actually useful, valid information. Um, I mean, I had a I had a conversation between yourself and Rob McKeefrey on a podcast or or a YouTube video, one of the two, mm -hmm. um, and it and it really stood out to me that for a guy with um, you know what you just said is a is an academic grounding in technology, just how focused you were on um, sort of us as a, as a collective um, in sport being people driven. In your experience, how do you balance and organize a performance team to be objective and tech savvy? But also be effective with each other as you know as human operators. Uh, great question. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I was, I, I've always been focused on the outcome and the person, the the people that I work with. So if I was doing something that wasn't going to affect the scoreboard, why was I doing it? And that's just a pragmatic mindset that I guess um, I've always had. And so there's so much research being produced and the question always is okay well that's fascinating but how does it apply and what's interesting in sports science is there and i need to clarify like it's not a case that I was the first sports scientist lots of sports scientists out there and people come along and say okay we've only now had sports scientists no we always had sports scientists but they were always working in practice now we have you know a theoretical arena where people are doing a lot of theoretical sports science research which is valid but you don't want the gap between theory and practice to grow too wide. You want to ensure that there's proper collaboration between the two. But one of the uh, trends or one of the phenomenons that you have in society today is that people 
education in itself is now an industry. So before we went to school, we went to university in order to get a job and to transition into it. But now you can actually go to school, go to university, stay within the education system, the education business. It's a business. Universities now uh, are focused on revenue. And there's a whole other conversation around sport and that. But now you don't actually, now it's almost become somewhat of a pyramid scheme where you know, you can do a master's, now you can do a PhD, now you can stay on, now you can do a postdoc, now you can keep going. And what that has led to is it's led to a widening gap between, uh, you know, theory, research and application in the real world. Not in all cases, but that is a trend in, in many instances. For me, it's always been a case of, okay, how do I affect, you know, the athlete in front of me, the coach, or essentially, how do I affect the scoreboard? And my realization working with professional athletes from the very beginning was it didn't matter what I knew. It didn't matter how many papers I read or what I translated. If I couldn't make it affect the scoreboard and if I couldn't make it affect practice the following morning. And that realization came to me very, very early on, you know, working with, you know, very well paid professional players, you know, in the premier league, you know, yourself um, all too well, if you can't, you know, communicate with uh, Kevin Nolan, Nicholas Nelke, Gary Speed, who were there at the time, uh, Joey O'Brien. It didn't matter what I knew or what I'd read. So that gap was always something that I was very, very aware of and spent more and more time trying to understand how can I bridge it? How can I communicate? How can I be aware of the athlete, the player, the coach, and this, essentially the stakeholders in this process? And that you know, led me to really trying to understand what applied sports science meant um, and how I could, again, keep going back to it, but affect the scoreboard. So you kind of think there's a there's a shift from being effective to maybe being a little bit more focused on being intelligent without necessarily being effective in whatever field and performance you work within? Yeah, theory has its place and research has its place and it's very important and it's critical that it's there. But I think the there has to be a clear understanding then that but you know when you're standing in front of you know a player uh, or a team, what you have to make whatever you're going to say or whatever you're going to do work in practice. Now the NFL strength coach actually this morning you know texting me about uh, the very same thing. You know uh, it's fine reading things in theory and it's fine having wonderful tables and formulas and percentages but when you stand in front of almost 100 nfl players you're going to make something work and what works in theory and what sounds good in, in practice very often doesn't isn't going to work in that environment and it's not a case that you're dismissing um you know science at all it's just okay i have to make this work in in the real world so what can i compromise on to achieve uh, or try to achieve these outcomes that have been proven in science and how do I make it work in the best possible uh, in the best possible way? And that's the constant battle that you have on a day-to-day basis. I mean, away from the podcast recently, I've had um, a few conversations with people in different leagues, and one of the themes that kind of emerged in these chats was that 
teams can have all the technology or the resources that they want at their disposal um, and they can have the staff that have you know upskilled and academically skilled themselves to be able to do things um, but then they, they come into a team or they're at a team and the team current processes don't necessarily allow for them to implement their solutions using that kit or their skills is that kind of a scenario you've seen in teams that's one way to describe the problem the other problem the other way to describe it is that the education or the exposure um ill prepared the person for the environment they were going into you know they weren't educated in the processes the restrictions that they were going to face and so you can look at it both ways um, but yeah, that's that's essentially the challenge that you have. You've got to, you know, because when you work in different leagues, of course, they all have different restrictions, different um, collective bargaining agreements, uh, different personalities, different cultures. All of those things are um, challenges. But I mean, not in a positive way. They're to me, they're fun because that's what. If I can fix that, then I'm going to make an. I'm going to have an impact. You know, I'm going to make a difference. That's the bit that I really enjoy because once you understand what it is you're trying to do, now you've got to make it happen. Now you've got to figure out a way around it. And that's the fun in the problem solving. One other, you know, it's just, again, these are there are a lot of societal changes that have impacted um, these challenges. And one of them is that the longer that you spend in a purely academic environment, very often the lower, the less or the lower exposure you have to challenging um personalities and interpersonal dynamics and that is a huge factor as well like when you uh you so you can imagine someone like me coming from ireland with a particular background particular um you know uh mindset and you know having to work with somebody who comes from a completely different environment background culture and having to communicate and connect and gain trust um was working with a special operations group again, and we were talking about this, you know, the importance of being able to build trust and then use that to allow your competency to have an impact within uh, the environment that you're working in. So there, it's, there's so many, uh, it's, it's very nuanced. There's a lot of things to consider. And uh, it's important, I think, that, you know, young professionals coming through develop in all of those different areas, not just simply in, um, you know, on, on the purely academic front. And I want to kind of combine your sports science background and your, your mileage with top teams. I think it's, you know, we've said it's, it's safe to say that we've collected a lot of data for a long time now. Um, and hopefully now we're maybe becoming a little bit more critical and selective of when we implement it or how we use it. Um, what are the kind of common mistakes that you see teams making when they're, you know, identifying or selecting their their tools, their tech, um, or the data driven mef- methods that they want to implement? The the very first thing is starting with start with the problem. Um, people start with technology or a solution, and they come with a solution to a team very often, or you know, they get sold a piece of technology or a solution forget about that for a minute sit down with your staff and look at the problems and properly identify what the problem is first and and find out you know and describe what that problem is then go and find the appropriate tool and people who are going to help you solve that problem don't start with the solution and try and find a problem for it because every team is different every team 
is unique. Every team is unique in different problems, and you have to find the right tool. So it's like, you know, it, it is truly like being, you know, a salesman coming to your door and giving you a hammer and telling you that this is going to solve every problem you have. So now, you know, every problem you have is a nail. That's not, you know, the way that we solve problems in life or um, traditionally. You have to go and really figure out what the problem is. And that's one of the great, um, those people who have that problem-solving mindset, that creativity, the innovation, the ingenuity to, solve, to identify correctly the problem, then come up with a solution and then go and figure out, okay, what is the real tool I need? That's where, that is the magic. And those teams that can do that are the ones that are will be more successful because if you just go out and look at all of the options that are available to you, you know, you can get overwhelmed. They all sound great. You go and buy, you implement them. You realize they're not delivering. Now you've bought, now it's the case of the emperor has no clothes. So you've got this wonderful system. It's providing all of this data. You feel inadequate because you're not making it uh, work. Uh, you know, the salesperson is telling you that some other team is having wonderful effects. They're your competition, so you're not going to ring them up and find out when in reality they're not. And so you've, it's, it's a wonderful, um, it's a perfect storm in effect. So, but really starting with the problem and identifying what that is and then being very strategic and careful and going, okay, I need this tool or this technology, or really it's this expertise to solve this particular problem. It saves so much more money, uh, so much more time, uh, and you're actually solving a real problem that you have. And do you have kind of a, a sort of um, typical thought process for identifying the problems or key questions that you ask? Or is this kind of more of an organic discovery that you do when you're, you know, more embedded in an organization? Yeah, so like, I mean, with, with consulting with teams, very often what happens is somebody says, okay, I've, I've got this challenge and you, you know, you go and you, you know, you visit with them, you look at the problem. But what you find is often that the problem that they're seeing when you phrase it in a different way, they go, ah, okay, that's the real problem I have. And usually it helps, usually it's helpful for them to have a different perspective where they go, oh, okay, so it's a far simpler problem I have and you can help them solve it far quicker, very often in-house and presenting a very clear model for them. Sometimes it's okay about, listen, you know, there is a, a technology option that can help you, but before we get to that, let's try and solve it in a simple way first so that we know the procedures, the processes that we need. So when you do invest in the technology, now it's solving it seamlessly. Um, that's particularly important. Um, you know, the more work that you can do on the front end in identifying the problem, solving and understanding the stages that you're going to need to solve it, when you invest in the technology, then it becomes, um, you're solving the actual problem you have and it becomes seamless. Uh, the integration of the technology because you know clearly what it's going to do you know what the expectations are and you're not getting distracted by other ancillary benefits that perhaps you were being going to be sold on otherwise yeah so the solution becomes actually quite clear if you're asking the right questions yeah exactly like you I mean it's like somebody coming to you with a supercomputer and saying okay you need this and you're going why and it shows you all of these wonderful things it can do but you haven't even paused to think is do i need all of these things when really all you need is a calculator or an Excel spreadsheet, you know what I mean? And so it's, it, it, that's very much what's happening. And of course, you know, there's huge money involved. And then, of course, then, you know, when you start to pause and you're pausing on, well, man, this is a huge investment They go, well, you know, uh, 
the Yankees or whoever have it or whatever the team is that have it. Um, you know, or you know, famous sports star, you know, fill in the gap. He uses it. You don't know whether he does or not, but <laughs> you know, um, and that's that's the sales cycle. That's what happens. But people, it's it's a like I said, it's a perfect storm. It's a combination of you know the if you know the only thing you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. It's um, the emperor has no clothes, and then the the uh, the final one is. Uh, FOMO, fear of missing out, and you know, from a marketing perspective, if you combine those three, it's very, very. It takes somebody with great, um, you know, uh, confidence to be able to go. No, I, I need a little bit more time to figure out what the problem really is. And do you ever see, as you know, obviously being sensitive to teams and organisations, do you ever see scenarios where um, the person asking you about what maybe their problem is, or what, or asking you for a solution? Do you ever see that there's other members in their department that don't see the problem the same way they do? So you've got one member of an organization thinking something's a problem that somebody else doesn't. Oh, absolutely. It happens. You know, it happens from time to time. That's the great thing because that sometimes is part of the problem is being able to um, chair those discussions where you figure out what the actual real problem is. And it's also about helping others identify um, the validity in different perspectives and recognizing that there are multiple stakeholders in these problems and challenges. And the other thing is reframing it as fun. Like it is exciting to solve these problems because it's like a, it's like walking out to your fuse board and, and helping them, you know, look at it and go, okay, see, this is the one we flick this boom, all the lights come on. And that's, that is, very often how it happens but it's getting everybody around that fuse board and going okay let's figure out this together and that's the the other side effect of that is that you know people sometimes lose um the forget the understanding that every, it's like you know everybody's on this huge boat we're all rowing it in one direction sometimes we forget that uh we're all actually trying to get to the same destination so that's a byproduct of helping solve a problem together. And we don't have to go into, uh, you know, specific teams, but to make your insights transferable to uh, to the listeners, we can speak in principle. We, you know, we've spoken about data collection. I'm interested to know what's, what's your approach into how people can interpret data more correctly? How do people, um, how can people trust that their, the data they're collecting is accurate and it's valid to what they set out to try and understand? So one of the things that's, that people, um, I guess, sometimes either uh, forget or, or misinterpret is that in the real world with, a, for example, a professional team, it's very difficult to collect truly clean data, you know, because you've got very well-paid professional athletes who, you know, have so many obligations, concerns, restrictions that you're trying to collect the best clean data that you can so that you can make decisions. So there's a lot of management of the processes on, and of the data. Sometimes it's incomplete. Sometimes you are at best looking at averages in some cases. Um, so understanding that is the, is, the, is the first thing. And understanding as well who the stakeholders are and what they want to know. And that takes a lot of awareness and reflection on what they uh, want to know 
and then what they need to know. And it's, it's a constant balance. So when you're starting out, you give people exactly what they ask for, what they think they, they, um, they want. And slowly over time, then you'll suggest this is something else I think you need. And that's the difference between a want and a need. Um, you know, cause initially people have a very, sometimes they have a very clear idea. This is what I want. You know that they could, that they need something else, but you know, give them what they want initially so that you've got buy-in trust. And then over time you can go, you know what, here's another metric that we're looking at that, you know, maybe another department's looking at. I think it would be very helpful. Or this is another piece of data that we collect elsewhere within the organization or within the, the, uh, system that when you combine it, now it gives you a greater insight. And sometimes you can do that from the get-go, depending on the group. Sometimes it takes time, but uh, it's that that's a process in itself. And kind of how much leeway do you think we need to uh, allow for the data to be inaccurate in the sense that, you know, you could ask an athlete to do something in testing or monitoring and you make this assumption that the objective data that you're collecting is is their maximum intent and that you're getting good quality repetitions or um, output from them. How much kind of leeway do you allow for things like personality factors and how, you know, athlete motivation, how they're feeling, um, you know, those kind of more psychosocial factors? How much, you know, space do you allow for that to perhaps skew the data? Yeah, that was something I learned very early on working with teams when we would have a limited number of um, whatever the technology was and we were working off averages, I realized that, you know, averages were a waste of time. Um, you know, looking at an average for a position group, uh, it, okay, it gives you an indication, but for the most part, it's not telling you anything you didn't really know already by looking at it. Um, by individualizing the data, that's where, you know, particularly on, on the elite end, but it actually carries true for everybody that, um, you can really only compare a person to themselves because that is their truest competition over time. And when you start to track individuals, you'll find that you can have two receivers, running backs, center backs, four, you know, wingers and rugby, whatever it might be. And they're achieving the same outcome, but they're producing completely different um, values in terms of the actual metric you're looking at. And that, you know, is a, is a wake up call when you see it. So now you're really only comparing the person to themselves and starting to set limits, tolerances for that individual. And that's a, a, an important point when it comes to managing data for an individual over time. But you, you never, you never, your goal is never to collect or accept poor data. It's just, you need to recognize that you, it may not always be, um, perfect and may not be of research quality and so sometimes when you see studies that are produced from professional teams you you, you know you just keep in the back of your mind um if that was truly collected in a in with a professional organization there's a risk that you know it might, might not all be perfect I watched an Altis 360 presentation with uh, Dr. Andy Gaplin, and he references an example from you where he, or I guess you more importantly, describe a soccer match case study, which displays different data variables like HRV, acceleration, and GPS. But the point he illustrates is that from a view objective variables, um, people in the Altis audience interpret the meaning behind the data completely differently. So the risk is that these data points could inform a decision that is perhaps not valid or at least it's inconsistent uh, depending on the perspective or, or the context. So 
based on this example, how do you create more reliable in, uh, interpretation to better inform decisions? Yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a great point because you need to start with um, a model of the athlete, and you, I'm a huge fan of creating essentially what is a unified model that everybody contributes to. And I did this with an NBA team recently where you, you have to construct a model of the person so that we all understand, um, even, you know, even just from a simple perspective, using the same language, like what does strength mean? What does speed mean in this context? Um, and, you know, uh, one of our mutual friends, Andy, and, and ours, Stu McMillan, you know, I was talking with him recently about speed endurance, like speed endurance on track and speed endurance in team sport mean two completely different things. Even within the same sport, actually, speed endurance um, can mean a completely different thing for different positions. So creating a model is very, very important, whether it's a game model or an athlete model, so that you recognize, okay, this is the person or this is the athlete. And then working out from that and going, okay, what met, What are the qualities we're looking to develop? And then from that, you identify what the objective me metrics we're going to use to measure it with the proviso that these metrics are only measuring what we, uh, and we're making an association between a metric and uh, an actual quality. So for example, HRV is a good metric for assessing you know, nervous system uh, activity or stress, but we can't assume that HRV is stress. There's a there's a difference. We're using that as a as a metric. It's like uh, using a thermometer to measure temperature. Um, it's m measuring temperature, but we have to also acknowledge that that's just an indicator of what may be going on in the body. And then recognizing as well that every again going back to the previous point, every individual is different. And so the standard ranges for a normal healthy male may not apply in this instance to, to an athlete. And so it's, it's just understanding the nuances. And then you have when you combine different metrics. So a simple one might be looking at body weight. Well, body weight and the fluctuations obviously must be individualized because you can't just compare two people's body weight because now you've got, if you include height, that changes everything. Then if you include hydration, now you've got three different metrics that all influence how you would interp interpret changes or differential in body weight. And so this, it's just important to recognize that single metrics alone are not sufficient to make um, good judgments. And that then there comes a point where you have to um, also speak with the person, you know, you have to have a conversation with the person themselves and find out maybe they just finished drinking a, you know, a liter of water or, or maybe they worked out and were in the sauna. Maybe that's, maybe that's just the simple reason that their body weight has changed suddenly. So the kind of people that are about to enter the, you know, the perfect storm that is sport, or maybe people that are in, um, professional sport at the moment, um, and they're, facing some of the challenges that we've been discussing is there any you know we've spoken about maybe the overvaluing of academic only um uh, education is there any kind of resources or ways that you'd encourage people to try and find clarity in such a complicated um you know overkill of information that we're getting in terms of how they get their way through all these processes and thought processes to be effective 
Well, I think that everything has its value. It's not that academia is overvalued. It's just recognizing um, its specific value and then recognizing what, um, you know, certain other sources of information, they have value, but they're more applied. And it depends on what arena you're working in, which you want to place most weight in and how you want to value it and how you want to come to decisions. And in terms of advice, I think the most important thing is not to become consumed by or completely immersed in one or the other and to have that awareness of what your ultimate goal is. And when you're very aware of what the ultimate goal is, then you can distinguish between what's you know, valid for you, which information is very valid and very useful for you, and which information you need to treat just a little bit more carefully. And so it's the weighting of that. Uh, but the best advice, you know, that, that I give to young sports scientists, strength coaches or sports coaches coming through is, um, develop your own, uh, intuition and be aware. Don't solely immerse yourself in, you know, in reading and academia as well. Develop your own intuition, your own awareness and your own interpersonal skills, because the athlete, the coach, the person you're actually working with, um, is going to teach you sometimes more than just the academic research or the applied research and reading that you're going to read. So it's like finding a combination between those um, is usually the best way to navigate this. Um, but always keep um, the main thing, the main thing. Um, uh, you know, always recognize what your, your ultimate goal is and uh, be aware of that. And of your kind of uh, of the of the books that you've authored, is Game Changers perhaps the most applicable to to what we've been speaking about today? Yeah, I think Game Changer was something that I wrote over a number of years. Like, I mean, I'd, I um, <laughs> I had this Excel spreadsheet where, and you know, I only really got half of all of the things I wanted to put together into it, and it was basically a syllabus um, as I was going through my career of people I learned from, the problems, challenges I had. And then I wanted to put it together into basically the book I wish I had when I was starting out. And as I was going through writing it, I had all of these anecdotes and memories would come back to mind. And that's what formed 59 lessons were just 59 anecdotes and lessons I learned working with these different teams and coaches that um, were invaluable to me. And it just served, served a few purposes, but one was to thank the people who had been so generous in their time and also then just to share the stories that you know many of the mistakes the fumbles the stumbles on a career you know about at times placing too much emphasis on data at times um not listening to coaches properly or not recognizing the importance of the player or perhaps assuming that you know because you know i've got a master's and a phd i know everything when the real expert is actually the player on the field things like that so I think it, it's um, I think Game Changer is a is a good starting point for anybody in the industry. It's uh, it's not a book you're going to sit down and read from start to end. It's a book that you know you can dip into and read sections from as as you go through. Fifty nine lessons is one that you can uh, <laughs> read small sections of before bed. And kind of at the level that you function at, and the level that you've reached in your career, where do you kind of turn to to? Uh... I guess, you know, stimulate your own mind and develop as a, as a practitioner? I think it's, again, it comes back to problem solving. Like, I mean, very often it's where do I see the greatest problems in, you know, that, that I'm presented with or that people approach me with and or being able to foresee 
where the challenges are going to be. So before, you know, to me, it was just being aware that technology had developed to a stage where it was going to have an impact in sports. So that's where I wanted to be uh, understanding and seeing, okay, well, the next gap was going to be in, um, you know, the gap between strength and conditioning and rehab. So I spent a lot of time studying that. Then I realized, okay, it's the integration of all of these different areas, whether it's nutrition and understanding then that this role of a performance manager was going to come about. And that was something then that, that I focused on, um, then I became aware more of the need to communicate because we had all of this information and building that. And, um, you know, so it's just, I've always been aware, able to see, I guess, where the next challenges are based on the advancements we've, we've had. So, you know, currently we're in a we're in a situation where we have so many teams with so many pieces of technology and information um, you know, the best resource that I can be is helping mentor those who are in the field at the minute in identifying what's really important and what's not. And do you think our teams kind of um, perhaps getting a little bit too large and having too many individualized roles? Or are you seeing trends that teams are starting to have multi-qualified people to streamline processes? I think the... The initial challenge is that there's a recognition that we have a very complex, um, we're dealing with a complex organism, like recognizing now how incredibly complex they are. And one of the solutions to that is to employ more people to help solve and address the different challenges. That in turn brings its own challenge because the bigger backroom staff that you have now, the greater the need is to ensure that they collaborate and function so that two plus two equals five, not two plus two equals three, which happens in many, many cases. And so you've got an option, you've got an opportunity or a decision to make. Do I employ more specialists and ensure they create a synergy and work better together? Or do I employ better specialists or essentially better generalists? And the choice comes down to generally the decisions made by resources which it shouldn't really be like i mean the wealth or exposure of the team um or the revenue that the team generates but in reality it should be deciding okay what's the best solution for this institution and for the organization my preference is always to develop the people because then they themselves would start to spot and identify and foresee problems rather than simply growing the organization big and then trying to solve it afterwards. Um, you know, and that's where, for me, the, the future is in helping develop continuous perfect professional development programs for the staff that you currently have in place. That's the greatest asset or the greatest improvement very often that you can that you can provide to a team currently because they already are in that environment they understand you know to use a colloquialism they know where the bodies are buried they know how this team functions so if you can continue to develop them um they've got so much domain specific knowledge that you can exploit within the organization so those are the two pathways get more specialists and help them work better together or develop the specialists you have into more generalists so that they function better together with fewer people and it's just on a case-by-case -case, culture culture-by-culture basis as to whether it's appropriate for one or the other yeah and again in some cases you know like so for example in an nfl team you'll have 93 guys at the start of the season or you know close to 100 bodies floating around well you gotta you know in that case you obviously need more people but in 
with smaller organizations, you can get away with fewer, not get away with, but you don't need as many people. But that still, you still have to ensure that they work well together. And um, have you got any? Have you got any more books coming out? I'm, I'm curious to know. Or have you got any projects that people listening should be aware of at the moment? <laughs> uh, man, I'm looking at a whiteboard with. Uh, um, I'm looking at a whiteboard actually with nine books uh, lined out and I don't know when I'll get all nine done but um, I've got another one coming out with Cam Joss we wrote uh, the process level two hopefully I think that's out next week or the week after we've got a a third level which will be out later on in the summer Um, I've got two other ones that are 90% written um, hopefully later on this year Uh, I've got working on a, a rugby book as well and um yeah the other ones i'll just hold on to for now but yeah there's there are a whole series of of books that and they're all the the books that i end up you know the the source for the book actually is comes from the industry when people come to me with a challenge or a problem it's really about saying okay well you know as i go through the process helping them solve it it's easier or it's more helpful for the industry to actually document it and put it out there you know, this is the best solution uh, for the industry at this point in time. And and it's great when people come back to me and say, listen, I took, you know, this system, took this process, took these principles, and I found this. And that helps me because I continue to develop it uh, further and keep refining um, and sharing. And it, you know, I say this time and time again, I'm not offering, um, you know, a, a magic bullet to solve all problems these are the best solutions that I know at this point in time. And it's just trying to contribute and help the industry uh, navigate, you know, again, all of the information, all of the data that's out there based on my experience and uh, to the best of my knowledge at this point in time. Yeah. And to quote, quote, and to quote the great Mike Boyle, Dan Paff said this to me as well, like, and I reserve the right to change my opinion about anything um, because this is the truth as I know it at this point in time. And you know, I'm I'm sure I'm not alone, but I would absolutely love to see that whiteboard because we're definitely an industry that loves a whiteboard um, to communicate oh, yeah. a lot of things. Yes, um, yeah. Where can people find you, and where you know what are the kind of handles where people can follow you? Yeah, so um, Twitter's the best, um, uh, probably the one I'm most uh, I use most often. So it's just Fergus underscore Connolly, um, and there are links to. I've got some online courses where. I go through the the morphocycle and break down, um, you know, the the things I spoke about in Game Changer. So showing practical examples that I've used in the, um, you know, Premier League and rugby and the NFL, um, and uh, and my website fergusconley.com. Brilliant. Well, we'll um, we'll post links in the uh, show notes as well, so people can can find you and reference that as well. Well, Fergus, thank, thank you, you thank you so so much for coming on today and um, giving us the benefit of your your pragmatic wisdom in, in the industry. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Humbling. Guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Informed Performance Podcast with myself and Dr. Fergus Connolly. I'd like to thank Dr. Connolly for coming on the show and providing such a meaningful but also intentional approach to how he influences athletic performance. On next week's show, I'll be speaking to the brilliant Heather Linden, the head of physical therapy for the UFC. But for now, thanks for listening.